everyone, and welcome back to the Legal Matters Podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors. I'm Jana Gardner, here as always with my colleague Dana Spears. Hi, everyone. We hope that you and your families are all staying safe and healthy out there. This month, we're going to talk about the most common questions we have gotten regarding the URPA. The RPA has been out for two months now, so this is a good time to check in on the questions that have been coming into the legal hotline. Sounds great. Let's get right into it. All right, so the first new RPA common question that we're going to address today has to do with the new language relating to the appraisal contingency that's in paragraph 3L2. Oh, we get so many questions on this. So many questions. And I completely understand why. This is a brand new concept that we're introducing into the contract for the first Mm -hmm. time. (laughs) So I don't blame anybody for looking at this and, and maybe wanting a little bit more explanation. The reason, just to give a little background, why this change was made that we're going to talk about is because if you've been doing deals over the past year or two, you have almost certainly encountered, if not written yourself, what people are calling appraisal clauses or appraisal gap language, right? It seems like tons of deals have those in them these days. Yeah. And so the issue, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, actually, but the issue Mm -hmm. is that people would write these clauses and then no one could agree what they meant. And the buyers would say, well, I meant this. And the seller would say, well, I thought you meant that. And then everyone would get into a fight when the appraisal gap language referred to 10 or $20,000 to be made up. And then the appraisal comes in $75,000 under, and now everyone's fighting about what, what's supposed to happen. So to try to avoid that, What we've done here in paragraph 3L2 of the contract is we've added a way to modify the appraisal contingency so that the buyer can essentially promise to make up a certain pre-decided shortfall amount. So the language still says, by default, if you don't do anything, it says appraisal contingency based upon appraised value at a minimum of purchase price. Right? Everyone understands that. Default contract is contingent on an appraisal coming in at the purchase price. But then there's an or and the ability to put in a dollar amount there. So I've gotten questions from people saying, do I write in the purchase price there? And the answer is no. But let's say the buyer is in good shape. Maybe they have like a $10,000 cushion. They have $10,000 that they could bring in to make up the difference. So you might have a situation where the purchase price, the the offer price is $500,000. And the buyer is willing to say, I have $10,000, so I can make up, I will make up a difference of no, you know, no more than a $10,000 shortfall. So in that case, you're going to be putting $490,000 into that blank space on that line in 3L2. Mm-hmm. So essentially what the buyer is saying is the appraisal contingency is based upon an appraised value at a minimum of $490,000. Meaning as long as the appraisal comes in at 490, that contingency has been satisfied and the buyer is agreeing to proceed, you know, that means bringing in the cash to make up that shortfall amount. Right. Which is so important these days because everything's overpriced and not appraising and you expect that. And so it's kind of an incentive to the seller. 
hey, you know, I'm gonna, I'm willing to make up the difference, especially if they're getting a loan and the lender's only going to lend at value. So they're mm-hmm. gonna need to maybe come in with anything extra to, to make it to the purchase price. Right. And like you said, this usually comes up in the context of like a bidding war where the price is getting bid up high and you know you're you're putting an offer in over at list price, maybe. And so everyone kind of has a feeling that the appraisal might come in a little under. And this is a way for the buyer to say, hey, if it comes in a little under, I'll still close, I'll make up the difference. Right. Now, two important things to note here. One is this only protects the buyer. So the example we gave is long as the appraised value comes in at essentially or 490 or higher, the buyer is agreeing to proceed. If it comes in at 480 or 450, the buyer can still exercise their contingency cancellation right because the appraisal did not come in at 490 in that. Right. So any amount under 490, they can cancel. As long as they still have the appraisal contingency. So (laughs) that's a very important thing to remember is if if you do write it this way and then the seller counters out the appraisal contingency or something like that, then that's the buyer saying, I'll proceed no matter what, no matter what the appraisal comes in at. So this, this is just a way of keeping the appraisal contingency, but adjusting the dollar amount downward. So that exactly. the buyer so you show- want to keep that that amount. If you do put the amount in there, you do not want to check the no appraisal contingency. Correct. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one or the other, not both. <laughs> exactly. And so the other question that comes up that we get is, well, a lot of times people would write that appraisal gap language and they would say buyer to pay ten thousand dollars over purchase or over appraised value, and we would talk to buyers agents who would say oh, well, that means that the purchase price is going to be adjusted. The buy, literally, the buyer will pay ten, you know, for the property $10,000 over the appraised value. Right. And you know, in our experience, sometimes that's what buyers meant, but what sellers sort of thought it meant was the way it's actually set up, which is about closing a gap. If that's what the buyer wants, if the buyer wants to say, I will pay, the purchase price will be $10,000 over what the appraised value comes in at, even if it comes in, 50 or $70,000 under the purchase price, that is something that would have to be written in specially to the contract. And it would have to be very, very explicit. I would want to see language saying purchase price to be reduced to or purchase price to be adjusted to that dollar amount, you know, over the appraised value. If that's, if that's what the buyer really wants. And if that is something a seller would actually agree to in a market like this. Exactly. It might be a, a really tough call there to put yeah. that language in there, but that is exactly what has to happen so that there mm-hmm. will be no confusion. And that's a big difference from what we have in, in 3L2. Right. And what most yeah. sellers are willing to agree to. <laughs> right. And in the appraisal contingency, the appraisal contingency that we have there does not address the purchase price changing at all. That is right. And if that is something the buyer wants, of course, you should advise the buyer to talk to an attorney, have an attorney draft up a special, a specific clause, because like I've said a million times now, I, I, I literally cannot count how many conversations I've had with both buyer's agents and seller's agents mid escrow facing a bigger appraisal, a shortfall than they thought they were going to get mm-hmm. and dealing with some vaguely worded, poorly drafted appraisal clause language. Exactly. And so you do not want to be the person who tried drafting a clause that now everyone's fighting over what it means. Mm-hmm. So if the buyer does want to have some language that's going to make changes to the purchase price, by all means, advise them to consult a real estate attorney, get something specific drafted. Otherwise, obviously our advice is to stick with the way it's set up in the contract and just deal with adjusting the contingency down as a 
as opposed to anything more elaborate. Exactly. Because you want it to be clear. You want it to be legally sound. Always. Um, <laughs> you're going to do something like that. But a lot of times you do just want the simple gap language that we have there in the contract that doesn't really yep. impact the purchase price. They just yep. want to pay any you know gap in yes. that from the valuation. So you can just use that. You don't have to repeat the language to recover it. I get that question a lot. Well, should I add a, a, you know another sentence also dating that cover the gap? Yeah. It's really not necessary. And that is a really great way to ensure that, you know, it's well written and there's no two ways to interpret right. it. No confusion. Yeah. That's what we like. So that's about it for that question, right? I think so. Okay. So the next question we get quite often nowadays with the new RPA is how does the designated electronic email work? Mm -hmm. yeah. This you're going to find on the final page of the contract. It's in the broker box section. And mm -hmm. as we know, um, when you're filling out the RPA, some things populate automatically. Now I've been told, Jenna, I don't know if you know, if you've heard of this at all, but I've been told that this does self-populate for some people. An email address pops in there when you um, are completing it. Have you heard that? I have heard reports of that. I believe, and this is all just secondhand based on conversations I've had with different brokers and agents, but I believe it may be a feature of like the MLS connect function that if you have sort of um, a feed that connects your forms to MLS information, which can be super useful in getting mm -hmm. property information, that that can sometimes cause um, this information to auto-populate as well, um, mm -hmm. which is something to be watching out for, because as we're going to talk about, this is an optional section. So you don't, yeah. you do not have to fill out um, the designated electronic delivery addresses and if you're a buyer's agent, you're not supposed to be filling out the seller's info, list, you know, seller's agent's information. That's for them to fill out. So exactly. you do want to be mindful of, you know, not putting in information, you know, information there where you don't want it or where the other side doesn't want it. Exactly. You have no idea whether that agent intends to put anything in yeah. there. Or not. So if that's even their current email address, if they yeah. want to use, if they want exactly. to use this feature, yeah. Or if it's a different, yeah, like you said, a different email or whatever. So, but that is where you would put the email that you want to be contacted at. And there's a place for an alternate email. Maybe you have a TC or another email that you want to use. In any mm -hmm. case, this email is one that you would be designating for delivery of all notices, such as our notice to buyer to perform and the like. And under the old RPA, Delivery of those kind of notices were effective upon personal receipt. So if you send a notice to perform when the buyer's agent received it, then that was when it was delivered. Mm -hmm. But the problem there was that it was really hard to prove, you know, when personal receipt occurred. You know, it's very right. frustrating for listing yeah. agents. You know, never knowing if they actually got it or if they'd admit it or whatnot. Yeah. Someone giving them the runaround, not really yeah. wanting to admit they received an email. Yeah. Exactly. So difficult. But under the new RPA, um, delivery of this notice would be effective when sent to the designated electronic delivery address. So it's not necessary for listing agents to have to verify personal receipt. It's upon your sending of it. So 
if I send it today, then today is the day it's delivered, as long as I send it to the designated electronic delivery address. And mm-hmm. so that email that's put in there. And that's why it's really important if itself, you know, populates in that form and you don't intend to, you know, handle things this way, you have to make sure you take it out of that broker box on the last page. And if you do want to, you know, conduct your business in this manner, then make sure that you've included it. And in the alternate, if you're going to have a TC or whatnot, um, also receive it, make sure you put that in there. Mm -hmm. This is all spelled out in paragraph 25K of the contract. So if you want to sort of Ref, you know, look back at that section. That's where we really talk about how we define deliver and, and delivery. And if you don't put the email address in, it just works the same way it always has. You got to confirm that something is in someone's possession, no matter how you delivered it to them. It, you know, if you can confirm it's in their possession, your work here is done. But this is now just an, so you can keep it the way it's always been, if that's been working for you. But if you yeah. like this feature and you want sort of this idea of, I want to know, you know, and, and obviously both sides would have to agree to it. But in our transaction, we're going to agree that when I hit send on your email address, something is considered delivered at that moment, then, the, you know, the agents can opt into providing this designated address. Exactly. And, you know, what happens if one agent does it and the other doesn't? Well, you know, right. I mean, you then, can. <laughs> yeah. But you have to be careful if you include your electronic designated email address and the other agent does not, notices you receive would be considered received at the time they were sent. But because they didn't include their email, your notices to them would be considered delivered upon their receipt of the notice. And you would have to confirm when that was. Mm-hmm. That can get confusing. Exactly. Another important thing to consider is that the moment an agent sends a notice to your electronic designated email, you know, it's considered delivered and you are then responsible for checking your email, checking your junk mail to ensure that you receive these, you know, making sure that it didn't go into the spam or anywhere else, you know, and you can leave it blank. And if you do that, as Janet pointed out, you'll have to rely on the old way of doing things, which can be a bit frustrating, but maybe that's, you know, the better way for you. You'd rather conduct your business where you are calling the other side to make sure they received it. And And you want them to have to do that for you. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a matter of preference. And I I think I just, I think you're, you're exactly right. And I'm really glad you emphasized the importance of if you are going to do this, Make sure it's an email you check regularly. <laughs> Make sure yeah. it's that you're checking your spam folders. A lot of emails have like protected lists or safe lists that you can add addresses to to right. sort of make sure that anything that comes from anyone working on the other side of the transaction that come through, have them send test emails. You know, just just be on top of it and, and make sure that you're not going to let anything slip through the cracks. Right. And a lot of times you're negotiating even pre-contract with the other agent. So you have a good idea whether or not those you know, emails are working. And agents can feel comfortable with a designated address if it's the one they've been using and they are certain that it works. So if both of you have designated you know, your emails, that's great. You know that when you sent it, that's day zero. You're good to go. Uh-huh. Yep. All right. So that's it for that one. And and that's pretty clear. And like Jana pointed out, you can read a little bit more on that uh, 25K. Yes, 25K, the definition of delivery sort of walks through uh, what we just talked about. Exactly. Next question. Yeah, so this is a question that comes up in, I think it's come up in literally every 
uh, class that I've taught on the RPA and we've been getting on the hotline as well, which mm -hmm. is people reading through the grid and getting to paragraph 3P, seeing items included and excluded and saying, oh, is that, so that's everything. It doesn't talk about, I don't see anything in here about window coverings or, or <laughs> pool equipment. Um, is, that, is that not included anymore? And so what's important to remember about, and this is a good time to sort of just have a reminder about how the grid works in general, right? Is that the grid is not the entire contract. It's just the modifiable negotiable terms. So this is just the section where you can check boxes to have items included, or you can write in to have items excluded. We still have, just like we always have, a built-in paragraph where certain items are by default included and excluded, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, just how in the old contract we had, you know, like four check boxes for various appliances. The big difference here is that now we have 15, 20 check right. boxes right. for all kinds of different items. And the reason for that is because these are every single one of these is items that have We've gotten calls in the hotline about, exactly. wrote in the forms committee about, they said, hey, we're getting into fights about wine refrigerators. We're getting into fights about video doorbells and bathroom right. mirrors and all of that. So now there are checkboxes to have these items included. And of course, in 3P2, there's blanks where if you know there's something the buyer doesn't want, you can write in to have it excluded. But as with everywhere else in the grid, on the left-hand column, there's a reference to another paragraph further down in the contract, in this case, yeah. paragraph nine. And that's where you go to see the standard terms of the contract. And so when you go to paragraph nine, that's where you're going to go and find the language you're used to seeing from the old contract about things like window coverings and pool equipment and water mm -hmm. purifiers and ceiling fans. That's all still there. It's just in paragraph nine because those items are included by default. And it's only if you want to check boxes to include additional items or if you want to exclude something, that's what you're doing up in 3P in the grid itself. That's exactly right. And 9B is all items that are included. 9C, all of those that are excluded. And as Jana mentioned, they're very similar to those things that were included and excluded before. So, mm -hmm. you know. yeah, they're, they're pretty much the same. Um, the only couple things I will note uh, before we change topics is that we, there's some additional explanations. So, you know, we used to get a lot of questions about what does window coverings mean? Mm -hmm. Well, now we say what window coverings mean, and that does include curtains, draperies, shutters, things like that. Awnings, um, everything. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm, everything. And then the only thing that is switched um, in case anyone runs into this is the procedure for wall-mounted brackets. Mm -hmm. So in the old contract, the default was, well, if there's something that has, is bracketed to the wall, like a flat screen TV or like a bookcase or something for safety, you know, those, those items aren't included, but the default was you left the brackets behind and just because you left those in place and the buyer could keep them or do whatever. Mm -hmm. But now I, I, I get the sense that most buyers didn't want that. They would say, if you're taking down your wall-mounted TV, I don't want your bracket. Exactly. Um, so now the default is that those brackets are excluded. So if a, if a seller has a wall-mounted entertainment system, they take the flat screen TV down and then they also take down the brackets and repair any holes, but they don't have to repaint the wall. So that's, right. that's just- We're going to put a little putty in there, make it nice and smooth, but you don't have to paint it. Exactly. 
That's all great. right. I think that's yeah. it for items included and excluded. Yeah, great. All right. So another question we're getting is kind of along the same idea of what happened to, <laughs> and in this case, we're getting, getting a lot of those these days. Yeah. Where is what happened to? All right. And in this case, it's what happened to the manufactured and mobile home purchase agreement, MHPA, and the probate purchase agreement, PPA. These former purchase agreements had a majority of the same paragraphs found in the RPA with additional paragraphs specific to either manufactured slash mobile home sales or specific to probate sales. Mm -hmm. Now, both of these agreements have been revised and converted into addenda that contain information relevant only to the specific type of sale. So instead of having full separate agreements for probate and manufactured slash mobile home sales, you simply attach these addenda to the RPA. Mm -hmm. When writing an offer for a manufactured or mobile home or for a probate sale, you use the RPA with the corresponding addenda. For mobile homes, you've used the RPA with the MH-PA, which is the manufactured or mobile home purchase addendum. And for probate sales, you use the RPA with the PA-PA, the probate sales purchase addendum. Right. Like, like you said, the, the main reason why I think this is such a great change is that instead of having a contract that was 90% the same as the RPA with a couple different paragraphs, you can just use the RPA and attach those couple additional paragraphs on right. these addenda. It just makes more sense. Mm -hmm. And then also you might have a probate uh, sale that isn't a residential purchase, that isn't residential, right? What if it's a commercial property going through probate or a vacant exactly. land property going through probate? And we didn't have a way to do that before. And so now you could use I know we're talking about the RPA today, but you could use the commercial purchase agreement or the vacant land purchase agreement and attach that probate addendum. And now you have a way to do that sale. So it's a little bit more flexibility. Um, Absolutely. And I, That's I an excellent point because yeah. I think a lot of people run into that where they're doing a commercial and they're like, well, what am I supposed to do now? You don't have anything, <laughs> you know, specifically for me here, but that, yeah. you can just add it to that contract. Yep. Uh, in the RPA, 4A, that is your property type addenda section. If you are doing a probate for manufactured home purchase, then go to paragraph 4A of the RPA, check the appropriate box, and that will add those forms to your transaction for you. Perfect. All right. So a couple more topics we wanted to address before we propped up. And this is another, <laughs> we're going to have one more yet again, uh, what happened to type of question. And that is what happened to the TIP form, the tenant in possession form? Isn't that what we use if tenants are going to be remaining in the possession of the property? Well, one of the major changes to the RPA actually is how we handle properties being sold where tenants are occupying that property. Mm -hmm. So in the old contract, if you did nothing, the default to the RPA was just if this is a tenant occupied property, then the sellers promise the tenants will be out five days prior to closing and you're going to close with the property vacant. Mm -hmm. And if there's one thing we've learned in the past two years now, that that is often easier said than done. <laughs> even, if everyone, <laughs> even if everyone is sort of trying their best, mm -hmm. it may not be possible to make that happen. And so a lot of buyers, sellers, tenants, just everybody ended up very frustrated and in a very difficult position when, whether it's due to the pandemic or other reasons or changes in the law or what have you, it just became difficult, if not impossible, to deal with this tenant scenario. And so- And, it, and even before the pandemic. So. Right, 
And so, and so really what the most important thing is now in the contract is that if the property, and so it's like I said, it used to be if they're, if the tenants were going to move out before closing, then just nobody did anything. Like you just, the contract, there was nothing in the contract about it. It was just, well, they're going to be gone. So we're not going to talk about it really. Right. <laughs> but where that became a problem is yeah. When things got more complicated. Mm-hmm. So now the new procedure is if the property is tenant occupied, whether or not the tenants are going to stay or go, then you, we have an addendum that you're going to attach called the tenant occupied property addendum, the TOPA form. Mm-hmm. And so in paragraph uh, 3M3 of the grid, which is the possession paragraph, that's where, you know, you talk about timeframes for turning over possession for seller occupied or vacant units in 3M2. And then 3M3 says for tenant occupied units, the parties are going to use the tenant occupied property addenda, the TOPA form. And one very, very important thing to know about that form is like the old TIP form, it does default to saying the tenants are going to remain in possession, uh, that the property is going to close with the tenants in place. And we're seeing that in a lot of transactions for the reason we just talked about, that it may or may not be feasible to get the tenants out prior to closing. And so we're seeing an uptick in buyers who say, okay, we'll close with the tenants in place and we'll figure it out later. But you don't have to do it that way. You can on the TOPA form, check a box and say, no, actually the tenants will be out by close of escrow or even five days prior to close of escrow. Mm-hmm. And, and with the parties agreeing that that's what's going to happen. But another significant change is that if that doesn't happen, there's really sort of a limited remedy for the buyers in that circumstance. Because before, Mm -hmm. if the tenants didn't go, people would sort of be in this open-ended legal limbo of, well, the buyers want it vacant, but evictions aren't happening and the tenants aren't leaving. And so what do we do now? So the TOPA very clearly says that, all right, you know, if if you agree that the tenants are going to be out at closing or before, that's a seller contractual obligation. But if the sellers act diligently and in good faith and do everything that they're supposed to do to get the tenants to be vacate and they're not able to for whatever reason, whether the tenants just refuse to leave or there's some sort of emergency, another change in the law, something like that, then the buyers can do one of two things. They can choose to proceed anyway. They can say, all right, well, fine. You tried your best. We'll close the tenants in place. Or the buyers can say, well, I don't want to close with tenants in place, so I'm going to cancel this contract. And uh, they are entitled to receive back from the sellers, not only their deposit, but their reasonably incurred expenses, such as the inspection and the appraisal, that they, the money they spent essentially on the transaction, the seller has to reimburse them since the seller ultimately wasn't able to deliver the property vacant like they said they would. Right. One other important fact, like you said, they can close with the tenants in place, but if they do so, the contract indicates that they waive any claims for damages and compensation, you know, rising out of the tenants remaining in possession. So Mm -hmm. that's another kind of limitation on the buyer. Right. So it really, that's really going to be for a a buyer who just is highly motivated and really wants this property and is sort of willing to to do what they got to do to, to close. Um, And the final note on that form is that if you, well, I guess whether or not you know in advance you're closing with the tenants in place, but ultimately if that is what's going to happen, that is the form that lays out 
all of the additional disclosures and information the seller needs to provide. You know, the copies mm -hmm. of the leases, you can ask for tenant estoppel certificates, all the other financial information relating to the, the renting out of the property. That's all contained on that TOPA. Right. Well, that's all about right. it for that one too, right? <laughs> I think so. I think we have just one more topic we want to cover today. Yeah. So the final topic is an old favorite. I think we've talked about this before as well. Um, we have a little bit of an update on it. And the question is, do appraisals have to be disclosed by buyers to sellers? Um, I think we have talked about this before because in the past- Under the old contract, yeah. yeah. Under, under Actually under both the old and new versions of the RPA, under paragraph 12, um, buyers were required to deliver to seller at no cost to seller, all investigative reports obtained by the buyer. But the question always came up as to whether or not an appraisal constituted an investigative report. And that really wasn't 100% clear. And I think we talked about that before, you know, um, but now it is clear and clarified in the new RPA, which is just wonderful. Under the new RPA, an appraisal is not an investigative report and the buyer need not provide a copy of it to the seller, but with two big exceptions. The first is if the buyer is canceling on the basis of the appraisal contingency, then the buyer will have to provide a copy of the appraisal to the seller, which makes sense. I mean, you know, the seller's obviously going to want to see it to verify that, you know, the house did not appraise and that yeah. the buyer has an actual right to cancel. They don't have to take the buyer's word for it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> they can say, okay, buyer, well, let's let's just see that. Just, uh, you know, nothing. Not that we don't believe you, but let's just see the proof. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And second, the buyer is required to deliver to the seller a copy of the appraisal when the appraisal is in connection with an FHA or VA loan. And that is because the FHA and VA loan appraisals remain valid for a period of several months. Right. And they stick to the property. So even if that that particular FHA or VA buyer or borrower ends up canceling the transaction. If the next buyer who comes along is actually is also an FHA or VA buyer, they're going to be stuck with that previous appraisal. They don't get to get a new one exactly. until the time period expires. So that's why it's important for the seller to know what you know what appraisal value they're working with. Exactly, and they they can provide that to a subsequent buyer if necessary. Mm -hmm. So yes. that's really important that you deliver it in that case. So just in those two instances, but otherwise buyers no longer have to provide a copy of it to the seller for certain. And right. so that is a great change on the new RPA. Right, great clarification makes, makes yep. all of our lives a little easier. Much. <laughs> and that's it for this time. Yep. I think we've covered all of the new questions that have been coming in. Well, not all, let's say that, you know, we're getting a lot of questions yep. on these issues. And as more come up, we'll do more hot topics for sure. Absolutely. We will definitely check back in um, as more time goes by. I'm sure that we'll get more questions and people will find new stuff that's different or confusing and we, we can check back in anytime. Absolutely. So this wraps up another episode of the Legal Matters Podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed our episodes so far. If you have enjoyed them, the best way to make sure you never miss an episode is by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, feel free to leave us a review and maybe even a five-star rating. Those reviews and ratings can help other folks find the show. 
You can also reach out to us here at the podcast directly by emailing us at legalpodcast at car.org. Finally, don't forget about all of the ways CAR member legal can help you stay in business and stay out of trouble. Of course, CAR members can call the hotline with any questions or issues at 213-739-8282, Monday through Friday, 9 to 6, and Saturday, 10 to 2, for transactional questions. Our other informational and educational materials can be found at car.org under the risk management section. Head over there to check out our Q&As, quick guides, webinars, and more. All right. So talk to you next month. Bye.